Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The long-awaited overhaul of the military's household good moving system is facing another in a string of delays. The contract, worth up to $18 billion, has faced years of setbacks because of bid protests and other contracting stumbles. This time, though, the problems involve information technology integration. DOD travel officials still aren't sure how long they'll take to fix those. Details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Officials at U.S. Transportation Command first noticed the issues during an initial round of IT testing back in August. At first, they thought most of the problems would be resolved by the end of 2023. Now, it appears that won't be the case. Andy Dawson is the director of Transcom's Defense Property Management Office. He says integrating the government systems with the new ones being built by HomeSafe, the winner of the new household goods contract, turned out to be even more complex than it first appeared. So there's two new systems in development, and we're building an entire new architecture. These are not systems that are getting deployed into an existing architecture. And so it's an entire build-out that we're doing. The, the last thing I would just say from a functional perspective you know, you go from business process into the design, develop, test, implement, assess, and of course the integration piece. The business process that we're driving to in the reform is surprisingly more complicated, I think, than most realize. And that, that complicated business process is on purpose and design because the guardrails are put in place to protect the tens of thousands of service members that relocate every year. The Global Household Goods Contract, or GHC, is meant to transition the military services from a long-standing system in which DOD contracts directly with roughly 8,000 moving companies each year for each and every military service member's move to an overarching managed service contract in which HomeSafe handles most of the process, including by subcontracting with those moving companies. HomeSafe also built an IT system called HomeSafe Connect to help manage its interactions with movers and with service members. But moving to the new contracts still require DOD to build its own IT infrastructure, called MillMove. That system will eventually replace the Defense Personal Property System. Both systems are mainly designed to support government users, but Dawson says the legacy DPS system relies mostly on manual paper-based processes once work is actually handed off to moving companies. And that is the initial customer interface where they will build out their initial move requirement. And then MillMove supports the over 200 shipping offices and the internal DOD business process required to operate the program. And then the file is then transmitted to HomeSafe Connect where then the now reformed process now really starts. Automating from the pre-move survey, which today someone comes out and you know records manually what you're moving the inventory process gets automated there's a re record of all correspondence between the parties and then in terms of visibility of your shipment all the way through the claims process so there's a complete transformation occurring but officials say they're not yet ready to estimate how much of a setback the it integration challenges will be they're working with HomeSafe to schedule more testing between now and the end of January 2024, but Transcom won't know how soon the department will be able to actually transition to the new contract until those tests are finished. 
Previously, DoD had planned to start handling at least some moves under the new system in 2023 and have it ready to handle the bulk of military moves by the peak summer moving season in 2024. Again, Andy Dawson. It is our goal to start shipments as soon as we meet the conditions required to successfully deliver an improved experience for our service members and families. We haven't defined as of yet, largely contingent upon the technical testing, what volume of shipments will be in GHC for the peak season. I think it's, it's safe to say the majority of shipments will remain in the domestic tender program uh, for peak season. Officials acknowledge that's not an ideal situation, considering relatively low satisfaction rates in the current moving system. During peak season this year, only 74% of service members said they were satisfied with their moves, and just 41% of those who filed claims for missing or damaged property said they were satisfied with the claims process. And it's only the latest setback in what defense officials have long believed will be the answer to the moving system's perennial challenges. After years of planning, DOD released its final solicitation for GHC in 2019 and awarded the contract to another company, American Roll-On Roll-Off Carrier Group, in 2020. Transcom later rescinded that decision amid a series of bid protests and what the Government Accountability Office said were pervasive violations of procurement law. Even after the reconsideration and eventual award to HomeSafe, the contract was tied up for another year while ARC and a second bidder challenged the reaward before the Court of Federal Claims. The court eventually ruled in DOD and HomeSafe's favor, but the final legal hurdles weren't cleared until December of 2022. Meanwhile, at least some moving companies who currently do business with DoD have expressed concerns about the rates they'll receive from HomeSafe under the new contract structure. In light of the contract's delays, the prices HomeSafe proposed to pay its subcontractors were based on labor rates that have since risen significantly, and some firms have suggested they won't be able to accept military moving jobs without losing money. But Ken Brennan, Transcom's Director of Acquisition, says the command feels confident the rates will be competitive once the contract is finally implemented, partly because he says the new contract will give moving companies new ways to get efficiencies from their own operations. We are confident that the rates that are in the contract uh, are capable of executing under the new model. The comparison of the new model to the old model is inappropriate and potentially a little bit unfair because when we award the 170,000 domestic moves individually to 800 different companies, the companies themselves don't know whether they're gonna get one today and one tomorrow or 10 today and not get another 10 until you know June. Uh, so there's, there's no ability to plan. The GHC model is based on the integrator uh, HomeSafe Alliance being able to manage the network and assign predicted work that balances not only peak season and off-peak season, but also balances the capacity across that, that short term. And, and peak season has been our most challenging point. But the rates are reflective of that efficiency that allows people to keep their trucks uh, and their crews uh, active more consistently at a higher availability rate. Even though the price may be lower, they've got 100% utilization of that vehicle and can actually operate at a less per transaction cost that still may be even equal to or more than what they're operating at under the current inefficient system. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Be sure to check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.